Hey, Mary Barbera, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me here. Oh, man, this is a treat because I can't tell you how many times I have lent out the verbal behavior approach to never have gotten them back. So I think personally I've purchased at least, uh, I don't know, four to six copies of them. And so to to be talking to you here uh, is, is, is again, a real treat. So thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's been great to uh, have met you online, and I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person sometime. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, so I'm familiar with your story. I know many of our listeners are, but I want to kind of, for those who aren't, I want to kind of take it back to the beginning because I know we were talking about other podcast episodes I've done as you've uh, probably figured out by now. My my typical first question is asking people how they got into behavior analysis. Your story is obviously unique. So uh, would you mind taking a few minutes and sharing that with uh, the audience? Not at all, not at all. So I graduated with a bachelor's in science and nursing um, degree in the mid-80s, and then I worked as a staff nurse in a neurology floor. Um, And then I uh, received my master's in science in nursing administration from the University of Penn. And um, I went on to become a head nurse, Uh, nurse manager of a floor and uh, went on to um, publish and do a little research in the nursing field. And my areas of interest were always, because I was in nursing administration, things like retention, um, time management, and the most recent study and publication I did was on shift to shift report. So you'd have nurses going from seven to three and then the, the second shift would come in three to 11 and then the night shift would come in. And it just seemed that during those um, shift switches, there was a lot of wasted time, a lot of overtime and a lot of patient falls and patient complaints because they weren't attended to because back in the, um, 90s, early 90s, we were um, tape recording our reports. It was just a whole lot of, um, I described it as a big game of pass it down the alley. So without knowing what ABA was at all, I uh, recorded and transcribed what people were saying, what nurses were saying uh, to each other during shift to shift report. And then I highlighted what should be on the Cardex and highlighted in a different color, you know, what should be in the Cardex and what should be in, in the documents and realized that 95% of what they were saying uh, should have been written down. And we moved to a silent report system and uh, proved that overtime went went down and, and falls went down and documentation was improved. So... I really thought that after I had um, my children that I would go back and get a PhD in nursing and continue my work in studying things like shift-to-shift report well, it because it, it eventually went, went hospital-wide, you know, this, this new silent report system that I developed basically by thinking this just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of always interested in behavior change and managing people and uh, programs and things like that. So then I um, married Charles, my husband now, and he uh, was a resident, an emergency medicine resident. We ended up moving back to Berks County, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. 
and I was nine months pregnant with Lucas. So I uh, had Lucas and then 18 months later I had Spencer and things started to unravel with Lucas's behavior. Um, in looking back, it actually started to unravel closer to 15 months, but I was pregnant with Spencer and not really noticing. So my husband first mentioned the possibility that Lucas might have autism in early 98, right after Spencer was born. I actually took Spencer to a well visit and Charlie told me, hey, ask the doctor how many words Lucas should have. So I did. So he said about 25 words and, um, my husband was concerned because Lucas was just like not understanding about the baby and, you know, like just clueless, just not aware of what was happening. And so the doctor said 25 words. So I came home and I said, he said he needed 25 words. And, and so Charlie's like, so, um, he didn't think he had autism. And that was the first, I'm like looking at him, staring at him going, what are you talking about? He doesn't have autism. And I told him, which is this in the first page of my book, the verbal behavior approach. I told Charlie, I never, never want to hear the word autism again. (laughs) It was Mm. kind of very ironic, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a question real quick? Uh Um, It, it seems like even from a, uh, you know, just kind of placing this in the, you know, the uh, chronological context back in the 90s, you know, the aut- autism really was not on the radar screen as it is today. And I just wanted to kind of observe that it was remarkable that your husband kind of had that in, in inkling uh, yeah. back then. And, you know, anyone who practices in the field for some period of time, you know, can tell so many stories about doctors missing signs and, and, you know, telling people to relax and doing all those things that we know yeah. is, is not a good idea. And and here your husband is, he's not even a pediatrician. He's an emergency room right. doc. Right. I just want that, that, you, yeah. that's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. And he was, you know, it was ironic too, because I ended up the one in denial for the first year. Um, after he mentioned the word autism, I was the one in denial. And I was counting, this is another not funny story, but I was counting those 25 words. Like Lucas had delayed echolalia, which I didn't even know what that was. But we would go to the park, to the museum where they'd have um, ducks there. And they'd have a sign, please do not feed the ducks. So we would take Lucas to the to the museum and we would he'd want to do these ritualistic things like, please do not feed the ducks. And then in the middle of the night, he'd go, please do not feed the duck, quack, quack, you know? And so I'm counting, please do not feed the ducks, quack, quack, <laughs> as eight of his 25 words. I mean, literally. Almost getting close. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, E-I-E-I-O, there's another five words, you know, just crazy because as a parent, you don't want, something to be wrong with your child, you know, so you'd hold on to these glimpses of words that would pop out or little sing songy things that he did, he used to do when maybe it's just a phase. And so there was just a lot of denial. And, and, um, when Lucas was diagnosed, it was one in 500. Um, and it was still, it was getting out there though, because, um, he was diagnosed in 99. My fir- my husband first mentioned in 98, but Let Me Hear Your Voice was published in 93. And Behavioral Intervention for Young Children with Autism, I believe, is 96. So they were out. Um, and once I read those books, 
um, I actually read them right before um, he was diagnosed with moderate to severe autism. The other thing is my husband and I thought, well, if he gets diagnosed, it's going to be very mild. I mean, he was in, enrolled in two-year-old preschool. He went there without a shadow. It wasn't like he was completely you know, out of control. He was just like a quiet um, kind of in his own world and getting speech therapy. So, you know, a lot of people, including the pediatrician, wait and see. He's just a boy. Maybe he'll, you know, grow out of it. Um, and I didn't know at that point the early warning signs, which a big early warning sign is lack of pointing with your index finger. And so then I went on once I found out that he had autism. I went on to uh, work with Nancy Weissman of First Signs, and we, we went around the whole state in Pennsylvania to, to educate physicians on the earliest warning signs of autism. So, so I, I used my nursing background a lot, and we, um, both being medical background, we started reading, you know, Let Me Hear Your Voice and Behavioral Intervention and figured out that ABA was the way to go, and... Um, you know, had to had to actually um, advocate and fight pretty seriously. At the time, we um, went to due process early on when he was just three years old, and we started with Lovas type ABA therapy. Um, that was pretty much the main game in town. And um, at the time, Pennsylvania was a state that has always been um, able. You were able to access almost almost 40 hours of therapy since he's been three years old and we got it started about um three months after his diagnosis so um he's gotten the best of the best treatment we switched to a verbal behavior approach about a year into therapy in about 2000 and um so um my first lawyer actually after i testified in my due process case um I testified for about five hours. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, I have a master's in nursing. I did little in-services for the preschool and, you know, founded the Autism Society of Berks County. And so I get off the stand and he goes, you should become a board-certified behavior analyst. And I looked at him. I'm like, okay, what's that? And he <laughs> told me, oh, it's a new certification that just came out recently and, you know, you could take a distance learning program through Penn State, which is what I did. And back in the day, you know, the the newer BCBAs, you know, they take online programs and it's all online. So this was a distance learning program, which was great because I was not in a position to be traveling anywhere, you know, for um, – and I ha already had a, a big background. My master's in nursing administration was – it was very much OBM-ish, you know, as you can imagine. Um and, uh, but, you know, we got a box of VHS tapes and binders of PowerPoint printouts. And so I would sit there and watch the, the tapes of people at Penn State. And so it ended up to be a really great program for me. And um, I know a lot of behavior analysts, you know, are a little skeptical of can you really learn online? I I'm a true believer that you can totally learn online. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's is uh, a lot of different avenues and there's probably pros and cons to all the different ways in which you can learn about behavior analysis. But for the moment, I want to hit the, the, the rewind button for a second. And I want to, you said you started with low loss therapy and then transitioned to a verbal behavior 
mm-hmm. uh, format. But just more broadly speaking, as a parent, not knowing what ABA is or not, or, and I know it sounds like you educated yourself by reading and stuff like that. But you know, when someone came in and started working with with with, with your son using a behavior analytic format, what were your first impressions from a parent's perspective, not necessarily from a practitioner's one? I don't know if you if you if you you still have that uh, point to if you can place oh, yourself yeah. in that that context. Well, and I still work, I work with a lot of new families with new diagnoses, but, but for me, I, I was thrilled that somebody was going to come in with some expertise. You know, there was different people. Oh, you don't need like a real, there weren't behavior analysts back then. These were Lovas trained consultants, Lovas replication site. Um, so she would come down from Pittsburgh. I think she only came once a month, but the first time she came, she came for three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, I remember sitting in, in the living room with my husband, my parents came, somebody watched Lucas for half a day, and then he was in the room. And, and you know, all three therapists were there. So it was a big, you know, workshop type thing. And she was explaining, I mean, to me, it made a lot of sense, because I was I already had my master's in, in nursing administration and I was interested in research and I was interested in, in formats. So it made a lot of sense. I remember her saying, we were saying, Lucas, come here, Lucas, touch your nose, Lucas. And she goes, okay, everybody stop saying Lucas. He's the only child here. And it's just adding to the, to his, you know, language comprehension issues. You're more likely to say the child's name when you say no. And so she said, just stop using his name. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote a blog on that. You know, that's a bit, that's a page in my book about not overusing the child's name. So, you know, I learned lessons from day one and um, it was great. It was, she was, she was an amazing consultant and she was uh, Lovas trained, but she was also, um, I think she had her master's in preschool element, you know, preschool education. She was great. Mm-hmm. And, um, one of the reasons we switched to a verbal behavior approach was because she moved south and so we were going to get a brand new consultant anyway and one of my really good friends autism friends um, flew down to Florida at the same time to hear Dr. Vince Carbone speak down there she came back we had shared some of the same therapists uh, with our two boys and she said Mary we got to we got to switch this is this is unbelievable. We bought the Ables. We tried to figure it out. We hired instead of hiring another Lovas consultant, we hired a VB consultant, which at the time was a little iffy. I mean, obviously in 2000, with the Ables just coming out in 1998, um, nobody really knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, but we we learned. We figured it out. I see. I see. And so. You go from there, and then you know you you, you have this uh, uh, recommendation from the attorney to become a BCBA, and you go ahead and do that. And um, so, take me from from there to authoring the verbal behavior approach. What were the circumstances under which that led you right. to think, oh, you know what, I should probably uh, write a book? Yeah. So. Um... So I became a behavior analyst in 2003, and right away I um, was recruited 
I got an email from someone saying, hey, we want you to work for the Verbal Behavior Project of Pennsylvania, which was a statewide initiative um, that in 2002, they they played around with two classrooms through, and I think it was like an $80,000 grant and from the Department of Education. And they said, you're being considered for a position. I'm like, I was just trying to get Lucas to have a decent kindergarten experience, you know, because he was getting ready to go to kindergarten. And so I was networking with other parents through the VB project. And I was saying, hey, I know how to do the ABLES, kind of, sort of. And I, you know, I'm a BCBA or I'm getting ready to sit for BCBA. I wasn't a BCBA yet. And so then somebody said, well, okay, she seems like she might be good. So I wasn't really planning on going back to work, but then I thought, all right, well, I'll I'll go back to work. So I um, started working for the Verbal Behavior Project, and um, but I was still doing those like first signs trainings for pediatricians, and so I was I was getting trained in just on my own. I um, went to an ADOS training Mm -hmm. um, to try to get myself better skills. And then I went to this stat training screening tool for autism and toddlers by Wendy Stone. And it was down in Nashville. I think she moved since then, but the stat is kind of a mini ADOS and it can be done in non clinical settings. So you don't need like a sterile room with a, with a $1,500 kit. You can kind of, well, at least at the time you could make your own kit and you could do it in homes and, you know, on floors with lots of distractors around. So I got trained in that. And one of the things I had to do to get certified in the stat was I had to take a, a videos of a typical kid and a kid with delays that was two years old. So somebody at the time referred me to a family that had a two-year-old that was probably going to get a diagnosis. And so they came over to my house, and we'll just say the child's name was was Tommy. So the child came to the house, and he was very delayed. He scored a four out of four on the stat, which is the worst score. I also showed mom how to do the – I did the enables real quick. He hardly had any skills. Showed her some – after the stat, I showed her some – some manding techniques and she was on the edge of her seat. She's like, Oh my God, she was a nurse too. And she said, I need to, you know, what can I read? What can I do? I need to learn all this stuff. Well, I didn't have, you know, hours and hours to give her. And then I started recommending the books, like let me hear a voice and um, potty training in a day. And, you know, not that she was into potty training, but some of the older books that had Mm -hmm. been really my Bibles. And then I realized I'm like, yeah, but I wouldn't do half the stuff and let me hear a voice because I had switched to a verbal behavior approach. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was working with hundreds of kids in the verbal behavior project. And, And so it was way different. It's a very different philosophy. Um, So I started saying, oh, man, you know, I want you to read this, but I don't want you to do it like that or he'll be a mess. And I didn't um, have the time to help her. So I said, you know what? We're doing a verbal behavior project training um, next week in, in Harrisburg. And even though you're not school age, you know, I can get you a seat in the beginner training. It's two days. You'd have to get a babysitter. You'd have to drive to Harrisburg. You know, she's like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So she went and she learned for two days. And and then I didn't hear from her. I saw her at the training. 
she came she came home and I sent in my my tape to get certified in the stat and four months went by and I heard from Wendy Stone or one of her people and they said um, you need to redo the stat tape because happy birthday is on the balloon and the balloons have to be plain Oh like what are you like, kidding me you can't even make this stuff up right oh so my I'm, goodness. oh my gosh i can't believe it you know so i thought well i wanted to see how little tommy was doing anyway so i called up mom and i start out with um you know how's tommy and she's like great she goes oh my god that workshop was just incredible she said i came back within two or four days he was talking i mean i just learned so much there that you know i was able to implement it he's talking and he's doing so much better so i said oh well great you know it's awesome and i said can you bring him back so i can do another stat because <clears throat> happy birthday was on the balloons so she brought him back and he had scored remember four months prior he had scored a four out of four which is the worst score right. and the cutoff for autism is two or greater on the score and i think when she brought him back four months later i think he only scored a 0.75 or a one like he had done that well to totally change his stat score and he no, you know, no longer on that um, met the criteria for autism. He still he got a diagnosis of autism or PDDNOS, but he's one of these kids that did really well. He just flew with it, nice. and um, I'm not really sure where he's at today, or you know. Um, but the last I ran into them, he was doing really well, like included or you know almost included with everything. And I, I don't know exactly where he was at, but he ended up doing really well. So. Then at that point, I thought, you know what, I got to write this down. I, I mean, I was, had all this knowledge in my head that I had gotten from going to the Carbone Clinic, what, uh, listening to Mark Sundberg for, you know, days of, of trainings, working with hundreds of kids through the Verbal Behavior Project, learning myself how to do sign, how to transfer trials, you know, just a bunch of different things. I, I also went on to publish an article with Rick Cabina, who was my BCBA mentor, called Using Transfer Procedures to Teach a Child uh, Tax. And that was my son, Lucas, and, and it ended up to be a great study, which is available on my website. Um, and um, so I was doing a lot of work with transfer trials, a lot of work with um, just all kinds of different things. So I, I, um, I had we had done a, an article in a local newspaper too when Lucas was four or five, and when that reporter came, it was a great article. She did like a seven part series or something. It was a, it was a big article, and she told me her name is Tracy Rasmussen, and she told me if you ever want to write a book, I will help you. And so I contacted Tracy, and um, she helped me write my book. Oh man, what a what a remarkable story! Um, you know, you're probably I think almost everyone I've interviewed thus far has either written a book or you know published several articles and things like that. And one of the things I've been meaning to ask folks is uh, what their writing process uh, is. And and so with respect to to this book, which is you know uh, obviously less academically focused and and more so pointed at at uh, you know uh, practitioners and parents and things like that. Um, what, did you have a specific process for writing the book? Yes. I, um, 
I used Dragon Dictation. Oh, really? Yeah. I, okay. I used Dragon Naturally Speaking because it was – I wrote my book 10 years ago in 2006. And I was just at the Penn State Conference and I ran into Mark Sundberg, of course. And um, we took our 10-year anniversary picture because 10 years ago um, in August in 2006, I uh, – happened to be sitting next to him at the Penn State Conference at the Nittany Lion Inn, and I told him I was writing a book, and he started saying, oh, wow, and I knew him a little bit from the Verbal Behavior Project, and so he started manding for information. Hey, what's the <laughs> book about? I, I'm like, okay, he's manding for information back. So I'm like, oh, it's you know, it's called the Verbal Behavior. Well, I don't even know if I had a title then. It's about verbal behavior. And then he said, "Oh wow, how much of your parent perspective versus how much of your professional, you know?" And and started. And then so then I was just like, "Hey, you know, maybe you could." I'm really having at the time ten years ago. I was really having trouble with the history of VB. And the comparing it to discrete trial, low VOS type therapy, you know, because I didn't want to take credit for any of these, you know, any of the work that obviously was done before me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I was just pretty much the reporter, the translator of this information, not, not the creator of it. And so I was really struggling with that. I said, maybe you could read, you know, read the book or read what I have or whatever. And and he's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, hey, if you like it, you can endorse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then I'm like, hey, maybe you'd even write the forward. And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm like, oh, my God. I just can't believe I just asked him to write the forward. So I, you know, get home and I'm all excited. So I email him. And I'm like, oh, it's so great to see you, you know. Um, uh, thanks for agreeing to read it and you write the forward. My deadline, now this is August, you know, and I said my deadline is um, September 30th to have like the whole book done. Oh my I don't know if you're forward, you know. So he writes right back and he goes, Oh my gosh, Mary, I had no idea this is how what your time frame was like. You know what I mean? Because he was working on his VB map book and he was also going on a two week vacation and leaving the next day and then when he got back he was going to australia and writing his vb map book so he goes there's no way i can i can write the forward or do anything for you i'm so sorry right so i'm like I'm not gonna give it up without <laughs> the college try so i write right back and i said you know okay you don't have to do any of it just i really need help with this with with the history and the comparison to the discrete trial. Cause you know, that is critical. I don't want to, you know, anger the other, the other camps in ABA and I don't want to, you know, take credit for something or report the history as being wrong, which I, it was pretty much wrong. So he said, okay, if you send me what you have right now, and I had half the book drafted, drafted, not in perfect shape, half the book. Um, if you send it to me tonight, I will print it out and I'll read it on the plane tomorrow. And I will give you general remarks when I get back at the end of August. So I'm like pushing send. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm sending him chapters on non-vocal to vocal and manding I'm, in the history. I'm like, oh my gosh, hopefully he doesn't think I'm a complete idiot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then two weeks later when he got back, it was actually my mom's birthday because I remember the date, August 22nd, he 
emailed me and he said, I love the book with capital love and I want to write the forward. And I was like screaming in my chair. I was so excited. So, um, yeah, I was thrilled. Wow. What a story. It's amazing. I have a lot of stories, man. Stories, (laughs) stories. Yeah. Well, stories are memorable. So that's good. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like the process, obviously time, timelines, notwithstanding, the actual day-to-day process of writing the book, if you were to do a different book or another book, would you, would you do it differently? Would you write it kind of the same way using the same practices that you did with the first one? Um, I wrote a little ebook that's called More Talking, Less Tantrums, 10 Key Components Needed for Autism Treatment Regardless of Age, Ability, or Setting. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a webinar I did um, that was transcribed. So, um, that turned into a little ebook. So I do think that, um, talking out a book, whether it's dictation or, uh, from a webinar or, um, is the way that I find best to get started of something that monumental. I mean, it was really helpful having Tracy help me write it because she, you know, she would take my words. And, and then she had two young kids that they were twins and they were typically developing, but they were like three. I think they may have had a little speech delays or something. Um, so I would, she came over once, I think with the twins. And so I showed her how to, you know, break up a cookie into 10 pieces and how to do a man session just so she could get a feel for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, so if she couldn't explain it in lay people's terms, you know, if I'd say something that she didn't understand, then she'd have to clarify with me and then she would write it in a, in a more layman's terms. So I'm already speaking pretty in layman's terms. And then she took it and made it even more understandable. And she just has a great writing style. Like I, I said for chapter 12, my last chapter, I don't even know how she's going to mesh this together. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. just kind of a, random thoughts and soap boxes and and when I got chapter 12 back and after she got at it she I I it was very touching I even cried which I'm not a big crier so I mean I was very happy with the way she um worked so well with me well that that that's awesome you know we we uh, I've heard the term uh the curse of information and I certainly we as behavior analysts oftentimes have that curse of information where we have a large body of knowledge on a particular topic area. And uh, the way I've heard it described is that, you know, our, our knowledge is at a 10 and we oftentimes in trying to communicate with, with lay people dial it back to like five or six, but we really need to go back to like two or three, you know, on mm-hmm. a, on a 10 point scale. And right. it sounds like uh, your, uh, your uh, Tracy was able to, uh, you know, uh, take the material and bring it back to uh, a level where it would be received well by uh, all readers. So, yeah, right. But but at the same time, you know, people that you've interviewed before really are at a much higher level than I am in terms of applied behavior analysis. Like, I feel that I'm you know, I've always been a relatively newbie to the field. You know, even and I always be, I think because of my nursing background, have always kind of 
brought things down for, for families to understand. You know, mm -hmm. a doctor might come in and say, oh, you have glioblastoma, blah, blah, blah. And then they leave and the parents or uh, the They'd the be looking at you would, saying, uh, can you translate yeah, that, Yeah, what did he say? And so I think, you know, all along I've always been much – and I came in as a parent, you know. So yeah. I'm I'm thinking, you know, my – so I don't I don't know that my knowledge is, is up at a 10, but, you know – I, I only have so much time on this earth, so I'm kind of I equate myself with you know we're we're in, we're on a big mountain, you know we've got a lot of people to help get up the mountain, and I'm not at the top of the mountain by any stretch of the imagination. I'm kind of like quarter way up, halfway up, and if I can get people just started and just comfortable getting moving, um, my goal isn't to like you know, fine tune things that I'm this major researcher and, you know, because it, as you know, takes a lot of time to publish in a peer reviewed journal. And I feel like I have more of a gift at the lower level of trying to get just basic practical tips out. Well, I would say a different level than a lower level, <laughs> just because I know you are reaching a lot of people and, and uh, right. it's making a difference. And I guess as a a less analytical, high, you know, especially the way I, I think very analytically, but I speak um, not as analytically as most people. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so let's, uh, I, I know you have um, a course that you've been, uh, you, you've already, you developed and launched and, uh, you know, to further get, you know, the information out there about, you know, using verbal behavioral strategies with kids on the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, so kind of a similar question to what I asked earlier. What, what are the, you know, what were the circumstances that led you to think about creating a, a course? Right. That's a great question. I, I have been thinking and trying and wondering how to do it for about five years. As online programs started, um, I don't love to travel. I have been to Australia twice to present on autism. I've been to France and Germany to present um, Canada and many, many parts of the United States. In fact, from 2004 till 2014, I presented every year at the ABA conference. I also was asked to do, you know, two-day workshops and keynotes all over the country and several parts of the world. And I mean, that's great. And I, I do do that. I just don't do it a ton because um, I'm very busy. I have you know, two sons. Now Lucas just turned 20 and Spencer is 18. Spencer's going off to college this fall. So, you know, our dynamics here, if I go traveling for five days, I have to get coverage for Lucas. Um, so it, it gets complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, my geography and history skills are lacking. too. <laughs> so I don't, I don't like to go to foreign countries internationally by myself, you know, that's, it's kind of scary. So, um, I don't love to travel. And even if, if I'm there and I am happy to be there when I am there, I'm presenting to, you know, 60, a hundred, 300 people, whatever. It's a lot of information. You know, if I speak for two days, um, it's, it's a lot of information 
and it's only to the set amount of people that are there. And then they go home and they try to implement this and, you know, Johnny's on the floor and well, I didn't show a video of Johnny on the floor when you did that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I wonder, you know, how to do that. And so I feel like I'm giving them, you know, too much information in a condensed format. It's just, and then people are, you know, when I went to present in the UK last year, some woman flew in from Pakistan, some woman flew in from Spain. It's a lot of money for these people. It's a lot of money to pay me and it's a lot of travel time. And so I believe that it's just much more efficient for everyone to learn online. Okay. And um, so, so I started in 2015, um, I launched a program called Autism ABA Help online training for professionals and gung-ho parents. And I thought maybe gung-ho was too cutesy, but I always used to call myself the gung-ho parent because I'd be like in the front, you know, at a conference or going to every con I went to so many conferences about so many different areas of autism. Um, I'm not, I did, definitely am not a one camp kind of gal. If I can go to another type of you know, camp and learn something that I can help Lucas or others, I'll go. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I decided to look up gung ho and it it's something like um, enthusiastically eager, especially in the times of warfare. So I'm like, that fits parents. Because <laughs> you don't have to be an expert parent. We've had parents take the course that have no idea what ABA is. And then we've had seasoned BCBAs take my online program who are like literally one guy said this is course has changed my life as a behavior analyst Wow um, from a seasoned BCBA and many seasoned BCBAs maintain ongoing membership because they like the camaraderie of our Facebook group they like to use the online training lessons to train their staff to train their families um, so it's becoming quite quite a, a very exciting endeavor. Um, so we've had people purchase the program for um, uh, from 40 different countries now. We've wow. only launched only launched five times, um, only sold the program to a few hundred people, not not anywhere near 500 or 1000. Um, but from 40 different countries. Um, it's just it's amazing to see because really if we think about like how limited the information is, especially to people in other countries, it's re you know, that they, they can't get to see someone um, present. And I found that um, people are really able to follow the program and uh, implement. I have exercises, homework that are optional, but you know, just one of the examples is for homework the first after the first getting started unit is you know your child or client is there and you want to for an hour um, write down all the things they say if anything if they don't talk if they don't speak at all if they say any sounds I want you to write those down and then we do the same activity at after unit four and the first time I ran the program, it was it was um, dripped out, which means you got unit one, and then the next week you got unit two, and the next week you got unit three. And so it was a five-week course. And so one of the very new parents just got the diagnosis, 
Um, she took the course and she said in, in five weeks, her son's language doubled. And she knew that because we took data. I see. Um, yeah. It's so funny how that works. It, yeah. And it, it um, was very empowering for people. I've only had, I offer a 14-day money-back guarantee. I think I've had three returns. Wow, that's remarkable. Um, and people can find this at marybarbera.com. Is that the, I know you've got a couple of different websites, but is that the yeah, main no, kind of? No, that's, uh, that's my website, marybarbera.com. Um, you can do a forward slash A-A-H and we are going to give a $50 off um, for your podcast listeners. Oh, and cool. they can type in the coupon code. You can put this in the show notes too. But the coupon code, um, they would type in behavior, the English spelling, the United States spelling, mm -hmm. behavior, pod, P-O-D. Okay. All one word, all caps. And that should bring you down $50 off. Make sure your $50 off comes off um, uh, before you purchase. And if there's any problem, you can just contact me through my website. So I hope that um, your your listeners will, will consider joining us. We've had out of the um, about 300 people that have purchased so far, we've had about 40% behavior analysts, 40% parents, 10% speech pathologists and 10% teachers or tutors. Um, and then the ongoing membership is about 60% behavior analysts. So we're creating quite a little tribe. Um, I was going to use that word, actually. Yeah. Yes, it's, it is definitely a very, um, very good tribe. <laughs> Have you had people taking your course and participating in your community while at the same time preparing either through taking courses or through supervision to sit for the exam? I have had some students, not as many as you would think, though. Most of them are behavior analysts um, mm -hmm. that are – actually, there has been. There has been some, yes. I see. Um, I can think of a few, but I, I thought there would be more students, but I think students are probably overwhelmed <laughs> with all the coursework they have. But, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I just somebody just contacted me the other day um, saying that she was pursuing her PhD and she would like to uh, study whether my course relieves parent stress or something. So you know, I'm I'm very open to uh, working with people to um, see how this might work to help you know as many people. We've talked about maybe making it an RBT training. Um, it right now it's good for type three CEUs for BCBAs, but I'm hoping soon to make that into type two CEUs. So I think, and I'm also, it's really exciting working that's going to be done soon this month, hopefully, um, intermediate learner program. So I'm taking all the stuff from the basic program, which is going to be a prerequisite for this intermediate learner program. So the intermediate learner program is going to cover all VBMAP level two and three and beyond. So I'm going to uh, show videos of how to teach prepositions and pronouns and interverbal webbing and all kinds of uh, things, uh, talking about how to, you know, some kids repeat say. When you say say banana, they'll say say banana. You know, mm -hmm. how do you fix things like that? Right. Um, and talking about the analysis of, of how intermediate learners can get really messed up with their language. So that's coming out. Um, I have a beta testing group uh, looking at those things now and I'm hoping to offer it to graduates of the basic autism ABA help program um, starting this fall. Oh, wow. That's very exciting. And I think, uh, 
It'd be interesting to see how your student demographic or uh, changes, or if it does, you know, or do you still maintain that 40-40-10-10 ratio? Yeah. You know, um, with regard to the BCBAs who are in the program right now, is there a particular, I don't know, for lack of a better word, profile or, or, you know, is it someone, is the typical BCBA enrolled in your program as someone who maybe had a different focus in their graduate training i'm just trying to think of you know yeah. uh, i mean we have several we have you know we have um i can think of of a few that are really traditionally lowest discrete trial train and they really they're they're having families come to them wanting vb and you know okay. um and so they're they're trying to see what that looks like i've had you know, lots of BCBAs that have seen me live or have read my book and handed it out like you have, Matt, and um, they want to learn more. Because, you know, one of the things, and I don't know that I answered this, but why why the online course versus just my book? Well, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, can read my book and read about the count and man procedure in chapter two. And, you know, but really, what does that look like? And it looks different for different kids, obviously. And, um, but I always struggled with, I think people are much more visual. I've had the fortune after I left the verbal behavior project, which is now the Patton, P-A-T-T-A-N, mm-hmm. uh, Patton Autism ABA Initiative. Um, they changed the name right after I left um, from the Pennsylvania Verbal Behavior Project, but after I left the project in 2010, I completed my PhD um, in leadership, and my dissertation is on how to train people on the verbal operands. My my dissertation is actually available on my website as well. Um, but after I left the project, I started working with early intervention kids, uh, birth to three. And so um, I was able then to formulate how to teach kids and how to train parents to teach kids and early intervention providers to um in more of a step-by-step format so i was able to develop my program and then um i've worked with the same handful of kids for the past uh, about three or four years as i've developed them and i have video permission for almost all of them so um that's been really great like i just attended a Penn State workshop, uh, National Autism Conference at Penn State is every August. And there was this wonderful researcher from Italy, Francesca Del Espinosa, mm-hmm. probably totally butchering her name. I'm sorry if I did. But I saw her present last year on autocletic framing. And this year she presented on theory of mind, which I wasn't even going to go to because I thought it's the description sounded really high functioning and I don't, I have a lot of more early intermediate learners mm-hmm. and I thought, Oh, but she was so good last year with autocletic framing. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to go. And it was unbelievable. Probably the best workshop I've been to in years. Oh wow! It's and always so, nice when you, you know, it's sometimes you, when you, it, uh, we have a tendency to strike out sometimes when we, we, uh, when we make these choices of what I to know, go see. So yeah, it's really fun when uh, you get something uh, uh, that, that works was, and clicks with you, right? Yeah, it was unbelievable. And she showed some awesome videos. And I had two, two or three clients in mind that I have video permission for that I literally was with one of my clients this morning. And we got some awesome videos of 
just what I learned at the conference. So, um, it's, it's been, and I'll plan to show that within my online program, you know, um, either as a bonus or as, um, part of the intermediate course, if I can get myself together, <laughs> it's just a lot of work to create these programs. And, and, you know, you don't want people to be jumping into these advanced programs before, uh, they have the basics down for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, on that note, do you have any, you know, I was going to ask you about any tips for practitioners to keep, you know, up to date on the research and things like that, either online or in person. It sounds like you had a great in-person, uh, you know, experience recently. Um, but given that you are developing this uh, kind of expertise in online learning and things like that, um, do you have any uh, any tips for practitioners keeping up to date with uh, stuff? And again, you can take that either way, either either in person or online. Right. So, um, a lot of my autism, um, continuing education has been through, um, going to the national autism conference, which I said is the first week of August every year, um, at Penn state. And they usually have really great speakers like Mark Sundberg, Vince Carbone, Brian Awada. Um, there were multiple people there, um, that, and they give three hour workshops and you can get your continuing education credits there. So it is a great conference. And you can also um, access a lot of these uh, through webcasting. I'm not sure of the exact, um, the national autism conference webcast, but I'm sure if you Google that, you could find it or maybe Matt, you could put it in the show notes. But um, I, I find that, you know, you can, you can do it in person or online, but um, just seeing some of the videos that Francesca had was was great. I also saw Brian Awada there, mm-hmm. who um, I've seen him in years past, but I hadn't seen him for a few years, so I thought I'd go to see him, and that was really good. He presented on automatic reinforcement, and um, I I was interested because – my son Lucas is 20 and he has had multiple um, issues with problem behaviors, self injurious behavior of knuckle biting and head hitting or aggression when he has a headache or when he's startled. And this started, you know, back when he was about 14 or 15. And so, especially with my medical background, I maintain my nursing license. My husband is, of course, a physician still. And, you know, so we're we're trying to figure out, like, he's biting his knuckle and he's saying head hurts. So Lucas can say enough for us to realize that it's a medical issue. And so as a behavior analyst, I get, I get really um, concerned when, when people – um, when behavior analysts are like, oh, it's it's not medical, they rule that out. I'm like looking at them like, how can you rule that out? You mm. know, when they, you go to a doctor, that doesn't mean you've ruled out all medical, especially if the child doesn't speak or have any way to tell you um, what the problem is. And so um, a few years ago, my my uh, the doctor, the psychiatrist actually um, diagnosed Lucas with a autonomic nervous system problem. And that was causing him to have um, an abnormal startle response. So it's like that fight or flight response. And so when a startle happens, he actually 
goes very, you know, goes very much in a flight situation or a fight situation um, where, you know, some people might, when they get really startled or stressed, they might pass out or go the other way um, where he goes kind of um, a little overboard. So he's been on a medication for his startle response. But, you know, now when I go to see kids, I do occasionally, I'll do FBAs. Um, and I did one fairly recently at a residential treatment facility um, on a 17-year-old. And, you know, he he has problem behaviors too. And I'm looking around, you know, of course, all the kids there have major problem behaviors. And, and I, I just have to think like how much of this is, is, has a medical component. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think, and Brian Awada at his talk at Penn State said, there's been no published research on automatic negative behavior. And um, so it kind of is, is shocking and disappointing especially because I really do believe that there's, there's a medical component in many, many instances that is either undiscovered or, you know, there's, there's just some issues. Well, you know, it reminds me of the conversation I had with uh, Greg Hanley in our second interview when we were talking about the relationship between practice and science. And sometimes, um, you know, science informs the practice and sometimes, you know, vice versa. You know, mm-hmm. so this might be one of those things where, you know, you've seen a clinical effect with, you know, with your son. Right. Um, and and there, I totally a practice then, <laughs> then science because I've, you know, done so much hands on with Lucas trying to figure out things for him, like mm-hmm. how to blow his, teach him to blow his nose, for instance, you know, how to teach him to tie his shoes. And then I would do blogs on this and I would, you know, um, there's YouTube videos. So I would really encourage um, students out there or people looking for dissertation topics or people looking for research topics to go on marybarbera.com and check out my blogs because I have a lot of procedures there and things that I feel pretty strongly about that I've done my own kind of research over the years. I mean, when we were in the verbal behavior project, we actually had to do case studies where we'd have inter-observer agreement, we'd have designs, we'd have graphs. You know, it's not published, but I, you know, presented every year at the ABA conference. So um, just because it's not in a peer-reviewed journal or a double-blind study as a medicine does not mean that it might not work and that, you know, all parents that believe in X, Y, Z are, are crazy, um, for your, for a specific child, like Lucas, for instance, when he was six, he developed acute onset tics, like motor vocal tics, and they were just getting worse and worse. And I was a behavior analyst. And so I got out my clicker and started keeping tallies of like trying to figure out how frequently this was happening was there, you know, a behavioral function? What was the, you know, antecedent? It was all over the place. It was worse and worse. And on a given day, it was 500 times a day. And it turned out to 1.39 a minute. I mean, that's how wow. much it was happening. It was out of the blue. And so I started doing research on acute onset ticks online on Google. And... At the same time, he had kind of open lesions on his legs. It looked like he had mosquito bites, but 
you know, it was June, nobody else had mosquito bites and, um, they almost looked infected. So I talked to my husband and I said, you know, let's put them on, um, an antibiotic and day five of the antibiotic, Lucas's ticks went to zero from 500 and his, um, his legs cleared up. So he either had like a staph infection. So I started looking into PANDAS. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. And you can find out more at pandasnetwork.com or .org. But um, they actually changed PANDAS to PANS now because what they're finding is a lot of times it's not related to strep. It's related to staph or mycoplasm or some other bacterial infection. So now it's PANS, which is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. And it can cause acute onset or exacerbation of ticks and or OCD. Hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of people believe that, and, and he went on to get the actual diagnosis years later, but we treated him almost every time he got ticks. We treated him with antibiotics and um, he got better. And then the one time he still had a residual ticks, like 40 a day. So the pediatrician put him on a stronger antibiotic and it, it kicked that out of him. But, you know, do I have any peer-reviewed published data on that? No, but I can tell you, and I've seen other clients. I've seen clients that all of a sudden have acute changes in behavior with ticks. And I tell the parents, you know what? go to the pediatrician, look at this website, they get on antibiotics. And sometimes antibiotics aren't aren't enough. Sometimes kids need immunoglobulin therapy, steroids. I mean, it's, but that's like a whole medical thing. So like behavior analysts are like, oh, you know, that's, they'll try to treat it behaviorally and they won't be able to. Right, because they're not addressing the underpinnings. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think with my background as a nurse and a behavior analyst, I, I would have like the ability and the, the interest in, in trying to design some studies to, to publish some of this stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's like how many, you know, how many things can you get into? And so <laughs> I, I really have to prioritize. For sure. For sure. But, um, oh, but to get it back to the online, how do you, how do you, I learn online how to do the online stuff, like how to have a course and how to do marketing and all that. Um, I've been taking um, several classes online. Um, One of the things I started out with is um, a small book called The Millionaire Messenger and by Brendan Bruchard. So readers may want to check that out. And then I follow Amy Porterfield's podcast on online marketing. And I'm actually going out to San Diego this weekend to see Amy Porterfield live, which she hardly ever is live. So um, I'm excited about that. So I've been trying to learn all about online marketing and trying to get my message out as at the same time trying to learn to new techniques for autism to help people around the world. Wow, very cool. Well, you've given me a lot of homework here, Mary, uh, for the show notes. So I've got a I've got a, a list of, th- of links to run down, and uh, I'll make sure to have all that in there uh, and more. Um, 
I, I think we're probably about at our uh, hour mark or so, and so I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and uh, is there anything else you want to leave with our audience? No, it's been great getting to know you better through this podcast, and um, hopefully my story, stories, multiple stories, will mm-hmm. help inspire others. And um, I just, I think ABA is a great field, and I'm, I'm excited that there's more things like this podcast and my online program to really try to get the message out because, you know, we, I think we have a lot of research and a lot of knowledge and now it's just disseminating that is is just so key to help people agreed agreed well thank you so much for your time and again uh folks in the audience you can find um everything you need to know uh that we talked about today at uh, marybarbera.com and don't forget if you are interested in the course there is that uh, coupon behavior pod and uh, again I'll put all that stuff in the show notes at behavioralobservations.com so um, Mary thanks so much again for joining us today thank you Matt all right take care